Hello, everyone. Welcome to God and Other Delicacies. I'm Nicholas D'Agosto. Thank you all for being here. I hope this show is finding you healthy, safe, and sane wherever you are in the world. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming Krista Rodriguez to the show. Krista is a professional actor and singer with a long resume of outstanding work that spans Broadway, film, and television. Highlights include Broadway runs of Lin-Manuel Miranda's In the Heights, as well as roles in The Addams Family, First Date, and Spring Awakening. On the screen, you've seen her in Smash, Chasing Life, Quantico, Indoor Boys, and the recent Netflix series Daybreak. Krista and I had crossed paths before, but the first time we really got to know each other was when she played Summer Henderson in season one of Trial and Error. One of my favorite memories of ours from that time was actually when we were all celebrating at the karaoke rap party for the pilot, and Krista, Stephen Boyer, and I got up and performed the theme song from The Golden Girls, Thank you for being a friend. Krista brought her Broadway pipes to the mic. Steven sang a spoken word comedic backup. And I played, as I often do, the air bass guitar. My wife took a video of it, and I love it very much. Now that I got that out of the way, let's let Krista talk. Welcome to the show, Krista. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh, God, what a time that was in that karaoke <laughs> bar in Burbank. I actually, I actually just watched the video again this morning before <laughs> I called you. <laughs> oh, it's so good. Uh, it's you know, so it's good. funny, while I was there that, that, when we were there that night, there was that man, I don't know if you remember this, handing out like hand-drawn sketches of people while they were singing. Oh, and no. I still have the sketch uh, in my house. It's a pencil sketch of me singing with the date underneath it. So I keep it as a memento. Oh man, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm sure I was so drunk at the moment that you told me that, <laughs> that I was like, that sounds great, Krista. Awesome. This night is amazing. <laughs> You're I like, totally I, need to, I need to tune my airbase right now. I can't <laughs> yeah, talk to you. Right? For sure. <laughs> oh man. Oh, um, good times. Yes. Very good times. Krista, there's, you know, obviously with these types of calls, I I could sit and chat with you about just catching up about the about life in general, but I want to jump into knowing a little bit more about Halston. I was I saw it on Instagram at some point. You were like, "I'm going to be Liza Minnelli. It's amazing, and uh, it sounds amazing." So tell me what it is, and tell me if and when you get to start shooting it again. Yeah, so um, it's a really great mini series, a limited series, as they call them now. It's a much, it's an elevated term. Yes, um, yes. That, is a, that is an elevated term now that I think about right? it. Right? <laughs> Back when we, when we grew up, mini series got a bad rap. So now they're <laughs> limited series. And um, it's a Ryan Murphy created show um, about mm. Halston, the designer, um, whose career really spanned decades from the 50s on to his death in the 90s. And Liza Minnelli was his sort of muse. They met, they both kind of intersected at the time when they were both rising in the world and she sort of informed his fame and he created her persona and they were best friends. And um, so Ewan McGregor is playing Halston and he and I get to be best friends, which is one of the greatest uh, joys of my life. So wow. we had just begun. We had filmed one of the five episodes when uh, when we shut down. So we were in talks about what that means for the future. But uh, I know that they really like the show and they're hoping to be able to to keep it going. But for a few weeks, I got to wear those eyelashes and sing and dance, and it was really an amazing experience. 
Wow, Krista, what an extraordinary role and what an extraordinary actor to be opposite of. Wow. Yeah. I, I imagine that was an extraordinary experience, even in just the run up and that first episode. That sounds really beautiful. I hope yeah. that it uh, comes back soon. And I certainly, I hope that it comes back at all. Yeah. <laughs> well, all right, Krista, the question I'm always waiting for, and I think maybe one or two audience members are too, is what did you have for breakfast this morning? Well, I guess what I had for breakfast this morning is in a larger context of what I've been eating this entire quarantine, which is everything I can get my hands on. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and uh, speaking of Halston, whenever they're talking about like wanting to come back to work, I'm like, that's awesome. I'm going to need four weeks notice yeah, because right. I need to get back into <laughs> You were at peak like, shape. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I was at peak dancing, singing, you know, all of that. And I was like, great, great, great. So um, starting last week, I decided to um, limit a little bit of the eat everything in sight that I've been doing. And so this morning I had a green juice that I made from scratch, which is sort of like a thing I like to do when I'm being my healthiest and taking care of myself the most. And that's made so, out of like um, green Skittles, green M&Ms. Exactly. Green <laughs> Sour Patch Kids and... <laughs> And an avocado. Yeah, it's very healthy. good. Yeah, that's healthy. It's good fat. That's good fat. Exactly. Good fat. Yes. <laughs> well, that's really good. That sounds healthy. I'm sure you I'm sure you shrunk 19 sizes. Yes, and I'm sure it will counteract the six vodkas I'm gonna have tonight. <laughs> yeah, right. For dinner. <laughs> God, whatever we gotta do, right? Whatever exactly. we gotta do. Mm-hmm. Oh boy. Well, Krista, let's dive in. There's a lot of stuff I want to hear about in your life. Some stuff that I get to talk to you about later in your story where you and I, I just become kind of a, an acquaintance of yours, but I kind of intersect at a, a really heightened moment in your journey. I'm really excited to get to that stuff. So how yeah. and when were you introduced to the idea of God in your life? Um, I was introduced to God immediately when I was born. My parents had been married for a year and they had just before that become Christians together. So they were fired up. They were walking the walk, talking the talk, living the life hard. So that's how I was introduced from the moment I was, you know, a child. I was baptized and going to church and went to private school and I was very much immersed in it. We definitely identified as a Christian family and that was a big part of our of our life. Was there a denomination of Christianity? Would your parents have referred to themselves as born again? They weren't. Yes, they were born again, non-denominational Christians. We went to Calvary Chapel Church in Orange County, California, which is sort of was the kind of um, flagship of this sort of denomination. And it was about, you know, in the 70s, it was sort of like the hippie loves. They had met in these tents and then it sort of had turned into a big mega church by the time I was going there. But yeah, but it was supposed to be a way to break down barriers between different sects. It was supposed to just be a sort of Orange County Christian, I think more specifically, as I as I grew up and learned. Um, it's, a, it's a special type. Yeah. And so do your parents still practice or do they still go there? They do not. They don't go there. You know, as you'll come to find out in the rest of my story, our, our lives sort of took a turn and we've all kind of entered into a new phase of understanding and questioning and sort of um, cobbling together the things that we had once felt. And we're kind of doing it as uh, separately on our own and also as a family. And it's been, it's been kind of beautiful in a lot of ways. 
well, that sounds fantastic. Okay, well then start, I suppose what we should talk about is still the kind of run-up of what made the religion so influential to you as a child and to your family and ways in which you practiced it that maybe set the stage for what you're going to tell me later. So could you give me some examples of what life was like for you when you were younger and things that were impressionable to you and that came to define the way you thought about stuff when you were young? Yeah, um, I... Hmm. <laughs> uh, I definitely, we encountered religion daily in our lives. It was important to be having like devotionals every day and we would pray before every meal and, you know, really had that structure of constantly trying to deepen the faith, constantly trying to go further with it. I was, you know, sent to a church camp every summer where every summer I would get recommitted to the faith and my parents would be going off to family retreats, couples retreats, individual women's retreats, men's retreats. I mean, we were always like in this constant deepening of our spiritual life. And I think for my parents, because that's what they were looking for in life, they had come to it separately later on in life. They were really uh, into it. And I always was into it because I felt like I was good at it. I felt like I could follow the rules very well. And while I do believe that so much of the Christian faith is meant to sort of say that there's a lot of grace and it's okay to break the, you know, not break the rules, but necessarily, but like that is not the point of Christianity is following the rules. It's the freedom that you get outside of the rules, I still found myself very attracted to the rules portion of the religion. And it felt like something that I could grasp onto and be successful at. Hmm. Um, And so as a family, we continued in that. And it started to, um, I I went to a private school when I, up till the point I was in eighth grade. And right around that time is when I intersected with the arts. Um, I had always loved singing and dancing, but I had never really found a community because it's not, I was like singing in the church choir at school and everybody was always, didn't want to be a part of the church choir. That was boring. They wanted to play basketball and, you know, do all those other things that I had zero ability for. Mm -hmm. So I found solace in the church choir. And, and I remember like singing in the pews and having the kids in front of me, like keep turning around and looking at me because I was like, gusto, you know, <laughs> singing at the sure. top of my lungs. And um, them being like, this girl knows all the songs. We don't care about these songs, you know? And I was like, giving it, giving it for Jesus, literally. Yeah, and so, yeah. um, well, so and we, you got a great voice too. So you're having fun showing that. I mean, like, not only did you, were you attracted to the idea, you, you're good at it. And yeah. so it must've felt good to be, to be good at it. Exactly. Exactly. Especially in a in a way where there was other talents other people had that were that were more valued in that arena the sports things or you know it was a very wealthy school we were not really a wealthy family so there was a lot of things that i wasn't fitting in on but that was something that i could do really well so right around that time i started doing children's theater with the local theater and training a little bit more and applied for the arts high school And that was really a big transition in my life in many ways. One reason 
kind of going back is that I have a sibling who was not a rule follower and he also went to that school. And so I was, he was six years older than me. So going through that school program, having to constantly prove myself as like the well-behaved child and the, you know, the one with the good grades and all of that. So when it came to switching high schools, leaving the people I had grown up with from when I was in preschool till I was 13, I got to sort of try a new life with some new people. And I wasn't defined by those things. And I wasn't defined by my faith. And I wasn't defined by that. I was now sort of learning what it was like to become a new person in a new scenario where people don't know you. And what do I want to share with these people? And what do I not want to share with these people? And and one of those things became religion because I quickly started to realize that some of the things that I had grown up with believing were being challenged with a more liberal or artistic community. That was a really interesting phase of being like, how much do I share of my religious life with these people? Right. Are you referencing specifically maybe things that would be considered conservative values, things like sexuality and all that type of stuff? Sexuality. Yeah. Sexuality, some moral things, things that you might have to do in a scene, um, cursing or, Mm. you know, debating with the uh, biblical merits of Jesus Christ Superstar, you know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I remember those conversations coming up were like, yeah, and, and sort of in a time where everyone's really evolving that age, going to high school, you know, and you don't ever really want to be different. And so it was a little bit of this thing I sort of had in my life, but didn't shout all the time and you were still we were practicing very much, all the time though exactly exactly and we would find the other people in the group that also had that but it wasn't something I was wearing on the forefront I wasn't I also when I was that age was a part of a Christian television show oh, wow. where we would it was like a Barney style television show with a it was called Colby's Clubhouse with a dancing computer and um, we would sing and dance for God, um, ah. on TV. And uh, I... Is this still I, available? Can I link to it? It's on YouTube. It's oh, on wow. YouTube. Yeah. Colby's <laughs> but Clubhouse. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm sorry. Can you just, <laughs> you just hear your voice? Like, oh, why did well, I tell him that? <laughs> I know. Well, I spent a lot... This is <laughs> why I brought it up is because I spent so much time. I would hide that that you know as much as people would be like oh I was on a tv show I'd be like I don't really want to talk about that because that's going to open up a lot of things about who I might who I am or what I might believe and what I might believe that might put me at odds with these other people and I just want everyone to be nice and everyone to be happy I'm believe my thing and you believe your thing and that's going to be you know that's going to be how we go sure and also on the other side of this I imagine you're feeling pressure to hide some of what you're learning at high school from your family or from your parents exactly very much so. Yeah. And again, it, it wasn't super radical because I was still living in Orange County. It was still um, a very conservative place. Most people, whether they were a practicing Christian or not, would consider themselves Christian just because that's, that isn't an identity in that area. It's just um, you go to church or you go to youth group and that's where you hang out and that's where kids go to like get in trouble is like youth group, you know? Right, right. (laughs) And like, it's just like a funny cultural thing. It doesn't really, it doesn't surround the real teachings or beliefs. It it more becomes about like, 
let's teach kids not to have sex and let's teach kids to behave and let's focus on the like the things that they should know from this teaching that is going to get them through high school, you know, is really what it, I feel looking back at it now. What is valued in that teaching is, is a bit more of what I would refer to as crowd control mm-hmm. than, than really a deep relationship with, with God. I have a quick question about your brother. So an interesting piece of this timeline is you have an older brother who is six years older than you, but five years into his life, his parents become born again. Yes. So as a five-year-old, he's now entering into an entirely different rule structure and organizational structure to his life. Is this, can I assume that that's part of what he's rebelling against when you sort of are talking about him not being a rule follower later? Or has this been a part, is this a, was this highly influential to you or was it more located just to that kind of like, Try not to be linked to my brother thing. Yeah, I mean, as far as religion is concerned, I think he did fold into it. I think that he was quite young, you know, and, and it sort of became what the family was doing. And he went to the same, you know, religious schools and all of that. And his rebellion wasn't always against religion. In fact, a lot of times he would maintain his religious beliefs throughout sort of his thing, but his struggle was more with the addiction. Mm. And that was what brought him sort of in and out of our family, still continues to, to this day. But, mm. um, you know, a lot of the ways to try to solve all those problems did circle around religion, sending him to Christian-based rehab camps and, you know, things that could sort of, you know, if there was more obedience and, and reverence to God, maybe things might fall back in line, you mm. know, but didn't always end up that way. So you're in high school and clearly things are lighting up for you in this arts high school. You're starting to feel, oh, these talents that I have that felt a little out of place before are now starting to feel very much in place. You're starting to kind of realize you're occupying some sort of middle ground between the world you're in at school and the world you're in at home. What's the kind of next evolutionary moment of this journey? Do you start talking openly with your parents? Do you start talking more openly with the people around you at school? Or do you kind of try to keep these dual, this dual nature of your life to yourself for a lot longer? Um, I definitely keep the dual nature to myself a lot longer. Um, One thing that I, I tend to be in general is just sort of an observant person. I don't like to ask a question during someone's explanation, because I bet the answer's coming. You know, I mm. I don't want to say, oh, I don't understand that. I would listen and keep listening and wait until it all clicked into my head. So now people are talking about issues I've never thought of before. People are having conversations about sexuality that I've never even entertained. Um, people are having conversations about morality that are different than mine. And rather than keep probing for more information, I just would listen. And I spent a lot of years just sort of listening and and filtering and saying, I don't know if that makes sense. Let me put that in the back of my mind. And then and then more influences of it are coming in, more interactions are coming in that are sort of filing back away into that, into that part of my brain. And then one day I find myself saying something that I believe that has sort of accumulated over this time of being filtered through all of my experiences. So it really was, um, it was not a time of me ever standing up for anything that I, you know, there were definitely things I, I did to stand up for what I believed in as far as the morality um, and things I wouldn't do 
in performing, especially as time went on, when it became, you know, we're in high school now, that's not as big of a deal, but there were definitely things that I had to say no to or things that I thought were a little too provocative for what my beliefs were. And that was a big, that was a big source of pride of like, I have these standards and I have these um, beliefs and no one has to know why or how that's coming to me, but I'm just going to stick with them because I answer to God and that's, that's all I have to worry about. So it was forming opinions and things, but it, I wasn't, still wasn't really wearing it on my sleeve in any capacity. So then you, you graduated 18. Is that, is that kind of the story of the rest of your high school? I mean, obviously there's lots of things that happen to a person in their mm-hmm. life, but uh, you know, is there any other major influential points? I mean, is there a, do you circle around relationships that are really influential or do they stay kind of arm's length because of your faith? Or is it that you graduate high school and go to your next journey, whether it's education or whether it's into acting and performance in general? Is that the next level? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I I had a relationship in high school uh, with a person who had a very strong faith, but a very different faith than mine. Um, A very strong Christian faith, but very liberal Mm. in a way that I had never experienced, which was you know, it was very important to me to be with somebody who had the same beliefs as me. Even if I wasn't espousing those beliefs that loudly, it was very important for me to have somebody because I wasn't going to eventually be with somebody long-term that didn't have those beliefs. That was something I was very staunch about. But he was so different and it was threatening and it was concerning. I mean, he was very liberal for what I was used to. And it was causing me to struggle a lot. And we stayed together even through the next phase, which was college, which is where we moved to the East Coast. So I, at 17, moved to New York City, which (laughs) is very different. So your family moves because of your talent? Oh, no, I go to school. Oh, you go off to college. And okay, Mm -hmm. okay, okay. And then your yes. your boyfriend at the time? Yes, my boyfriend at the time also goes to college in Boston. And so we go off together to be musical theater, you know, heroes. Um, wow. And, yeah. Wow. And was it made, were those decisions made a little bit for each other that you could both be near-ish each other in Boston and New York? There, there definitely, I think, could be some of that. If you ask my parents, of course, I made that decision to move for a boy. Um, they don't <laughs> believe that now, but at the time it felt very scary. But I do remember having that feeling of my whole life I'd wanted to live in New York City and I felt like that was the right time to do it. And I needed to follow these dreams that I've had since I was a child. I mean, even before I knew that I wanted to be, quote unquote, on Broadway or in theater, I knew I wanted to live in New York City. My first trip there was when I was six and I have wanted, I knew I wanted to be there since then. So it felt like if there's ever a time to like reach for your wildest dreams, it's when you're 17 and when you have people supporting you and a family that supports what you want to do. You know, no one was asking me to do anything else, backup plans or anything like that. So I was like, here's the time. So we went out together, but it really caused the strain in our relationship. His more liberal policies of his life. And I remember going, desperately trying to find a church in New York City now that I'm on my own. I'm not going to church with my parents. I'm not, Mm -hmm. I have to now find a place in this new city that agrees with what I agree with. And commit myself to really going. Do I, is this something I really 
do when left to my own devices. And I remember like getting counseling from a pastor who said in, you know, if you guys don't have the same beliefs, you have to, you have to let that go because that's not, you know, his, this pastor was a bit more conservative and he felt that those other beliefs were a bit more dangerous to the fundamental beliefs of Christianity, which were, which now I would, uh, I would think are, even those liberal quote unquote beliefs are a little too conservative for where I've landed in my life. But it's so funny that desperate, like, I still need to believe this thing that I think, and this challenges that, and I can't have that for my life because what I had an example of at home is people very equally minded working together for the same purpose. And what was very threatening to me was not having that, not having that complete and utter alignment in that belief. Um, and I'm and I'm 17. You know, I think back on it now, and I'm like, holy cow, <laughs> the the pressures that I was weighing of all of the things that were going to mean something for the rest of my life. You know, so anyway, so I ended that relationship and wow. set out on my own. In and he was very this, unhappy. Uh, we ended it together. Ended, but, it was something that you got, you both began to realize once you... Yeah, we were also teenagers, you know, and living in different states and everyone's high school boyfriend you show up with on the first day at college. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, everyone's <laughs> placing, placing those bets. How long that goes? <laughs> For sure. How long am I going to take the, the Chinatown bus to Boston every weekend, you know? Right. <sighs> so, um, yeah, so now all of a sudden I'm in... I'm learning things in New York City that I had never encountered and an openness to ideas I had never been introduced to. This is a perfect place to take our first break. Great. You're at the beginning of your new transformation. So I'm excited to jump off at that point when we come back from the break. Great. Okay, see you in a second. At times like this, it is necessary that we ask ourselves what is worth talking about, what is worth listening to, and what we each can do to make the world around us better in our own small way. Discussions revolving around a person's beliefs and perspectives on God are something I personally can speak to, and my intention is to create a space where our deepest feelings about God and life can be expressed, heard, and better understood. That is one of the motivations behind God and Other Delicacies, and it is my humble hope that it contributes to the positive side of the cultural ledger. It is my intention to continue to create opportunities here for the presentation of those ideas that are different than mine, so that I can listen to them, come to understand them better, and hopefully discover ways in which I and each of us can participate in fostering communities that are ultimately more fair and loving for all. All right, everybody, we're back with Krista, and she is... 17 years old, 18 years old, and she's just about to begin discovering the adventure of New York and a whole new life. So tell me about it. Yeah, so I'm I'm sort of beginning my journey in New York. I'm loving it there. And I'm trying to reconcile all the new things that I'm learning and all the new people I'm meeting and 
sort of being on my own for the first time and deciding what I do when left to my own devices. This is a very short story, but I remember the first time I cooked bacon for myself. I always grew up with two pieces of bacon only allowed, you know, and then like I started cooking bacon and I started like, I can have as many as I want. And within 10 minutes, I had cooked the whole pound and eaten the whole pound of bacon. (laughs) And I was like, oh no, when left to my own devices, (laughs) I don't know what to do. (laughs) (laughs) That is such a great anecdote about what it's like to leave really tough rules and then discover. Yeah, the structure. Yeah, you have to like go so far past the line and realize, (laughs) like, come back. Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. So, so I was sort of doing that. I was cooking the bacon throughout life, just like figuring eating a whole out pack how a much day. is too much. Yeah, exactly. Hence the green juices. Yes, um, yes, that's right. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, so I'm I'm doing that. I actually started working on Broadway when I was 19. So wow. it was very soon after my journey at, in New York started that I was now a professional working actor and had left school. I never got my degree. So were you at NYU? Um, were you at I NYU? was at NYU. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. Does NYU encourage that that uh, that type of audition? Uh, they don't. They don't encourage it. In fact, you're not even allowed to audition for NYU shows your freshman year. Wow. But I was, you know, auditioning outside, just going to open calls and seeing what I could do. And I still had an agent from my time in LA who would represent me in New York. So it was sort of easy to kind of go on things and and fail and figure it out. And and I really happened to move to New York and be there at the time when pop rock musicals were coming and like young things were happening. And, you know, it wasn't all like Oklahoma and like these, uh, you know, older ingenue women. It was now things like Spring Awakening or things like Next to Normal or those sort of shows that focus on a younger group. So my first Broadway show was this musical called Good Vibrations, which was a Beach Boys jukebox musical and an utter disaster and complete failure and really a hard landing into Broadway. So um, Wow, and you anyway. just left school. So you yeah, leave school and- for like this huge yeah, thing. It's a Beach a- Boys musical. You figure this is going to be a massive hit. Well, anyway, I think it's Broadway, regardless yeah. of whether it's, you know, whatever it is. I think, well, it's Broadway. It's got to be the best thing I've ever worked on. I've only done children's theater and now Broadway. Right, <laughs> So right. it's got to be good, you know. <laughs> and uh, it was not good. Wow. But I had only taken a leave of absence from school. So I actually went back to school. I went back to school about three times in between going doing Broadway shows or doing a tour or wow. doing out of town tryouts of shows, and I I tried to get that degree. It did not happen. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> oh well, uh, degree in musical theater will do me no good anymore. So um, yeah. So anyway, so yeah. I'm now in the thick of not just this experimental time of college, but now I'm a working professional and, and now surrounded by adults in this industry and learning about all of these economic beliefs, political beliefs, moral beliefs, like things I had never been had never been encountered, or if they were encountered, they were the outsider opinion. Now I'm in a full majority. I was in New York City during Bush's election. I'm in New York City during right post 9-11. I'm there during all these enormous things that are just sort of shaking the foundation of who I am, who the city is, who everyone is. It was a new era for the city, and it was a new era for me. And um, hearing adults talk about uh, political beliefs that I grew up thinking were very correct and hearing people talk about them as if they were wrong and keeping in my heart this idea that I was probably still right. (laughs) 
Mm. But keeping that to myself and keeping this idea of like, oh, wow, I have, I might be the only one here who has this other side of things. And also hearing sort of a lot of vitriol to, to about very conservative people, vitriol against religion and never fighting it. I never fought against it. Um, I listened to people and I listened to what they were saying, but also knowing that I knew people who didn't believe these extreme hurtful things that, you know, maybe gay people had encountered in the church, you know, having a more liberal experience of church than other people had, but Mm -hmm. also seeing that that's still painful for so many people and feeling like, I don't think they need to hear my side of this. Mm. I think I need to listen to these stories some more. And even if I would have a conversation with them, realizing that I could only go so far with the talking points of this religion that I had created for myself before ultimately ending in, well, that's up to God. That's that's for him to decide and for me to not know. Mm. And increasingly over the years, feeling dissatisfied with that answer to people. You know, I grew up with the phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin. Mm. And feeling like that was a great answer to somebody mm-hmm. who was going through something, you know, searching, gaining acceptance for who they were. And it's, you can love gay people. You just don't believe that that's okay, but that's all right. As long as you still love them and sort of dismantling that idea of how that can't actually coexist, how you can't be actively believing that this person's rights don't matter. Because by the end of that sentence, I just say, well, God must have a plan and it's not for me to decide. And it felt like I was shirking the responsibility of these people who might not have had a voice. And here I am able to sort of hear them, but constantly have to cut them off at what they what they need from me. Wow, um, wow. very, very impactful stuff. Yeah, I was feeling very dissatisfied. And so while having like about 10 years of, of my time in New York and sort of slowly drifting away from this belief, I was in an, another relationship of a person whose beliefs did not align with mine. And I, you know, always get into them thinking this is going to be great because we're going to come up with something like even better together. <laughs> and um, it never really ending that way. So when that relationship ended and kind of coinciding with all of this stuff I had been experiencing, I decided to recommit myself to faith at like 28 years old, 27, 28 years old. Wow. And I had found a church in the city that was right next to my house. I had had this impactful moment where I had gone to this church and they were much more accepting. There were, you know, gay people in the congregation, which I had never Uh, experience before. And it was really about how do you take these principles that you thought you learned as a kid and apply them to being a real like person in New York City? No one moves to New York City to be mediocre at something. You move there to be the best. And how do you reconcile wanting to be the best at something in a city that demands so much of you and still believe what you what you in your heart want to believe, you know? Mm. So I ended up being at this church and I was sort of reluctant in the beginning. I didn't want to do it. But every time I would come to church and I would sing the songs in the church, I would start crying. Mm. There was something about this like need for connection, this need for um, 
a belief that something was going to be okay, that someone was orchestrating my life in a positive way was something that I felt that I needed. And I, I met all these young professionals and I met all these like young people who were on fire for God, but that were still like wanting to be successful and the best in their field. I always had a guilt about that. Was I allowed to want things or was I supposed to sell my possessions and follow Jesus like the disciples did, you know? That's right. Um, And so there was a lot of that. And so here I was in this group of professionals and I remember sitting in church one time and this person was sitting in front of me and he had a scar in the back of his head. And I was just interested. I was like, oh, I wonder what that scar, like that's an interesting scar. That was the end. And um, I had set up this thing where I was praying every few hours of the day. I thought, you know, I got to get back into it. And prayer is a big part of that. And so I had an alarm set to do different parts of prayer during the day. And the next day I was performing at this club and I, my alarm went off for this prayer and I went into the closet because I was like, I could very easily not do the prayer. I'm at this nightclub right now, but I decided to go in the closet and do the prayer. And I came out and I see this person with the scar on the back of their head. Hmm. And I said, I'm sorry, I know, did, were you at, you know, church yesterday? And he was like, yeah, like you sat in front of me and I was so curious about your scar. And he was like, that's so funny because I had this scar since I was a kid and it's a really painful memory. And I always wear my hair long, but I just decided to shave my head because my air conditioning broke in New York City. And so he was a performer. He's a musical theater performer. We had our paths had never crossed. We knew all the same people. And here he was going to my church for the first time. And I had just started going to the church and we We ended up getting pizza and staying out all night talking about our experiences. And it was this really beautiful, like, coinciding of these great beliefs together and something that maybe I could, I could figure out. And it was really special. And I hold those moments really dear. However, it unfortunately was very short lived. I found there was still a lot of pain in these places and people were acting out of pain. And when this person who had the scar um, was gay, he wanted to start a gay ministry at the church and they didn't want that involved. Whereas I thought, you know, obviously he was gay. He was at the church. I thought that that was, we were all accepting that that was okay. But it was sort of that situation where, of course, we accept you, but we don't want you teaching. And I think it really laid into me all these things. Like I grew up believing that women weren't supposed to teach in the church and women pastors were somewhat dangerous and this sort of idea that there were people who were more suited and ordained by God to be listened to and people that weren't. And it stopped sitting well with me again. You know, I was having these moments where I was feeling like maybe I could really do this, but this experience of that happening, plus this experience of, and this is this is partially me, this unfortunate feeling that I have that I still, as much as anyone can teach me that it's not about, it's about faith and not works, there is still a heavy emphasis on works in the church, in the modern church. And I felt like I couldn't break away from that. I never felt good enough. I never felt like I was doing enough. Mm. Even if my heart was yearning for it, I could never accomplish enough. 
And that was really difficult for me. And and I then had other encounters. I, I did this show, First Date, which you mentioned, and the lead of that show was Zachary Levi, mm-hmm. who's a very outspoken Christian and mm-hmm. um, in the business and very much like has a lot of beliefs that he has fought hard for, that he believes in and, um, you know, has held tight to. And now all of a sudden I was in this thing like playing the opposite of him and he and I and this other friend of ours in the show really formed this very tight religious bond together of people who were searching for a real way for this to live in your life and to absolve yourself of this teachings that we had as kids of the rules and of the of the sort of crowd control like I had said or the or the women control or the the need to put a damper on women's sexuality, on women's leadership roles, these things that I was that I was grappling with that I could no longer get to the end of that argument and say, well, that's up to God. I just couldn't do it anymore. And so we really tried to unpack it. And, and that was another sort of beautiful time of fellowship and camaraderie with these people. And that ended in January of 2014, which brings us to you and I meeting for the first time. Wow. Okay. So that's, that's where you're coming from. Yeah. Okay. Where are you at in the journey with your, I mean, you have to speak at least briefly about your relationship to your parents during this. So are your parents deeply conservative still, still attending Cavalry Chapel and, and you are checking in because you love your parents very much, but you're not necessarily transcribing all the conversations for them, you know, that you're having and all of these personal beliefs, or do they start coming to a head in your family at this point? Um, There were times early on in what, in the times before I started finding myself at church again in my late twenties, where it was definitely a scary time for my parents. They were still very much, uh, my mom in particular, still very much, you know, involved in these beliefs. They had stopped going to Calvary Chapel because, you know, they welcome my theater family with open arms and the theater family opened them. All of my parents' friends now are from that group of my children's theater friends mm. still. We're still a very tight-knit group of people who have sit remained friends for over 20 years. Mm. And in that, their beliefs started to expand and they started doing sort of what I was doing, was searching for churches that would have a bit tighter hold on the reins of these things that didn't actually feel as important as they did. And especially when you're young and fired up like they were, it feels very important to proselytize and be very strict on your beliefs and not let the quote unquote enemy come in and derail you from your beliefs. Mm. But as time was loosening up and they were being introduced to new ideas and new people and also not being able to reconcile how some of my best friends wouldn't be able to have the same rights as me because of what people believe in the church. So they were expanding a little bit as well and finding those things, but still very much dedicated to going to church and being in the belief. And it it was, I remember having some very hard conversations with them where my mom was very concerned for me falling away. Um, Mm. And I kept saying, I, I still believe it. And I still want to do those things. I just haven't found the place that aligns with what I believe yet. And especially if I would date somebody that didn't have the belief, they would get very upset that that would potentially be like a partner of mine that didn't share those beliefs and might might take me, you know, over to the bad side, for lack of a better term. Mm. Um, and then when I reinvested myself in the church, they were thrilled. My mom and I were having open conversations about our faith that we hadn't had in a long time. And 
sharing with each other what we were learning. And so it was a time where we had a better vocabulary together than we had had really ever because as a kid, you don't have the same, you know, as they refer to it in the church is you're not eating solid foods yet, you know? Mm. And so, <laughs> you know, now we were sort of both eating our solid foods and trying to like wow. work it out together. So by the time you and I meet, which is on mm -hmm. the failed sequel to How I Met Your Mother, which was How I Met Your yeah. Dad, you and your parents are kind of, it's a synergistic moment. You're kind of all together yeah. in a set. They've, they've liberalized a little bit. You've been very progressive and liberalized inside the Christian church, but you're still Christian. And so there's kind of a, an even level. The waters are, are relatively smooth at this moment. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what happens next? <laughs> uh, well, you know, the year really began. It was a bit, you know, I, I'm going to tell this little anecdote too. Zach and I had become very close and our families had become very close. And as sort of our show had closed in January of that of 2014, and as sort of a um, celebration and a testament to the new year, we took a family vacation to Antarctica. Wow. Uh, and we, Whoa, I, I, my mom had always, rad. <laughs> yeah, my mom had always wanted to go. It was her seventh continent. And, oh my um, gosh, cool. And Zach was like, I want to go too. And I'm going to bring my sister and my friend. And we all like decided last minute, it was like two weeks before we decided to like, just take this crazy trip to Antarctica. So we end up in Antarctica and, or we don't, we end up in Argentina and on the boat, which is where you're supposed to get to. And the day that we're leaving, the boat breaks and the entire trip is canceled. <laughs> oh, so my 2014 gosh. begins with a broken, like a canceled trip, which has never happened before in the history of these trips to Antarctica, a canceled adventure to Antarctica. <laughs> and wow. it's really, it's really a harbinger of things yes. to come for that year. Um, wow. Here we are like this unit. We're like on fire for all kinds of things. And we're going to take adventures and that doesn't so much work out. Whatever, we're, we end up going to Costa Rica. We have an amazing time. While I'm in Costa Rica, I get the phone call to fly home early to audition for How I Met Your Dad. Wow. Um, so I come in and audition for one, for a different part, which then the audition doesn't actually go very well. And I go, well, that was a big, you know, you know when that happens, when you cancel a vacation just to go to audition and it sucks. And you're like, well, it's that was brutal. a big waste of time. Yeah, absolutely brutal. Yeah. So then I'm in, in LA now, just hitting that pilot season rigmarole. It was a bad year for me, pilot season wise. I had like gone to, I had one show that I had basically gotten. I'd gone through the test position and everything. We were waiting for the end and then they canceled the show completely. They decided not to make the show at all. And and the press release was due to a depleted talent pool during oh. pilot season. Oof. And I remember later working with one of the guys who was also supposed to be on the show and being like, way to blame the only people who have zero control during this whole situation. Yeah, like, no the doubt. Actors, it's the actor's fault that you can't make this show. Yeah. So all of that leads to me getting another audition for How I Met Your Dad, getting released from that and having the audition for How I Met Your Dad, getting to test for it. 
and getting the job that day and being like, well, this was exactly how things were supposed to work. Yes. <laughs> I might. So, I feel, I'm just, yeah. I feel bad just feeling this story because I know where it goes. <laughs> you know, right? Oh, so, so I remember, I mean, I'm going to try not to, spend, I know we have more to talk about, but I just remember that table, that first table read me going, I don't, this doesn't feel like it normally does. And I remember you vocalizing that too. Yes, I did. And and unfortunately, I couldn't stop myself from vocalizing that. I wanted to be chill and I wanted to be confident, but I couldn't. You start to feel something go wrong and you can't fix it. And because it's not to be fixed. It's yeah. the train's already on the track, you know, and pilot season just so brutal. And so, yes, you know, I started absolutely. noticing the the character keeps changing. The, you know, every script has a new rewrite of just my character. People <laughs> like, should know that um, in this is one of those hybrids, uh, How I Met Your Mother, but it's really still a four-camera sitcom environment. And when you do that, they're rewriting scripts almost every single day because it's a very live. Day. There's an element of like um, stand-up to four camera sitcom. Like if the joke's not working, it's a new joke tomorrow. It's a new joke it's tomorrow. Gone. And so yeah. that's what she's speaking to. This doesn't happen on every show, but in, in four camera sitcom, it's very, it's very stagey. And so people can just rewrite that stuff all the time. Right. And which I had never been a part of. I'd never done a sitcom and definitely not a hybrid. And I remember actually calling Zach and being like, Hey, they're rewriting my stuff a lot, and I can tell it doesn't. Like, what do you think's happening? He's like, I think you're gonna get fired, and wow. I was like, Really? No way. That's not. That's wow. not what happens in my life. And he was like, Doesn't matter. You show up. Be confident. Do your work. So the only thing you can do, but better know now because you can go get another show. That's really what he said. Like, hey man, that is awesome to. advice from him. Wow. Yeah. And uh, I came in the next day, and we did that final run through. And I remember coming to you. I mean, we barely knew each other. We mm. hadn't even had like a get together dinner at this point. We were not like all getting together. It was high stakes. It felt very high stakes. But I remember grabbing you after one of the scenes and like freaking out and being like, I think that's it. And you being like, you know, this is just a weird situation. It's okay. You know, and me being like, I think this is not going my way. Yeah. And I remember even speaking to them and being like, I just don't want to get fired. Oh my God, you're never going to get fired. You're not going to get fired. And then getting in my car and getting a call from my agent 10, yeah. 10 minutes after that. Wow. Um, and just <laughs> being like, so Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And just being like, oh my God, I, I don't even know what to think. And then still getting sent the scripts the next day. Like mm. it was like, there was all, and I was in the hotel because I was an out of town hire. Right, and right. I had to, I was getting kicked out of the hotel. I had to be moved out the next morning. Ugh. I mean, it was like, it was just the destroying. It, but at the time felt like this happens to everyone. Everyone talks about their get fired story, you know? Yeah. And even when it happened to me, everyone's coming in with their get fired story. It doesn't help. <laughs> it no. doesn't, like it helps a little bit because you go, okay, this happens, but you know, you don't have to really recover from something like that. And it's not that you recover from thinking you can't do it necessarily, but you recover from ever being able to take anything at face value. That's what I felt about yeah. it was that you stop trusting when people say you're doing a good job because 
they're really not at liberty to say you're doing a good job because it's not even their job to say that you're doing a good job. And it's because they're trying to do a good job for their boss. Everyone has this, is looking up to hope to get favor from the person above them. And no one's looking back down to really make sure that everyone feels secure, you know? So that was, let's say that's April, okay, of that year. I turned 30 in July of that year. And really, like, I remember waking up on my 30th birthday and being like, if you just took a snapshot of today, there really isn't anything here that I ever thought I was going to, you know, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't have anything that I thought I would have when I was 30. I'm unemployed, spectacularly and very publicly fired. Mm-hmm. Um, I was newly out of a relationship. I was, I was living with my parents. I was directing a musical at my high school. Mm. I was just sort of like, huh, what's going to happen to me here? And not really sure what my life was going to hold. And then pretty soon after that, I was very shockingly and abruptly diagnosed with breast cancer in September. Yeah. So it was a, it was sort of a toppling of a lot of things that had all converged into one year for me. And, um, I really view my life in BC and and after it's before cancer and after I think mm. I finally this is where I become who I am today in a very short amount of time. All right. What a great story. I can't wait to hear the rest. <laughs> All right. We'll be back with Kristen in a couple of minutes. God and Other Delicacies has a weekly newsletter. If you'd like to subscribe, email me at godsdelicateshow at gmail.com and I'll put you on the list. Also, if you're listening to this show on iTunes right now, I'd love it if you scrolled to the bottom, hit five stars, and wrote a one to two sentence review. It really does help the show reach more listeners and it means a lot to me because I read them and it's nice to read nice things. Okay, everybody, we're back with Krista, and this is that moment I just knew was coming in this story. I'm interested to be a part of it. Please start to tell me what starts to unfold for your life once you make this heart-wrenching discovery. Yeah, so it was a total shock. I And you're so young. Yeah, I'm so young. I have no family history. I don't have a genetic disposition. None of the things that would make you think why I would habits so much that I didn't really I didn't really worry about it that much when I went and got the tests but people were around me were starting to worry I could see the doctors starting to worry and that's when it ended up sort of getting a little scary for me and mm. I wrote about this in my blog you know the moment they bring you to the room with the couches and you're like oh no the room with the couches they don't give you good news in the room with the couches and please mention what your blog is again because uh, oh, I, yeah. I should have referenced that at the beginning of the show Yes. So the, the blog's name is called Chemo Couture. The website is kristacouture.com, but the name of the blog is Chemo Couture. And it was a blog that I set up first as an idea to have some fashion tips for women who were going through chemo, but then ended up being sort of a chronicling of my journey and what I was learning to that point. And um, I get a lot of people who will find the blog when they've been newly diagnosed. And it's a real it's a real joy to be able to use my experience for the benefit of somebody going through this. Oh, that's beautiful. Okay. So, so continue please. So you're in the couches. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So I'm in the couches and they, they tell me 
that I have cancer and they they tell me that I have a good type of cancer, which mm. is a which is a great news. I have the old lady cancer, as they called it. Statistically, if you've been diagnosed at the age I was, you have a very aggressive form that is looking to do some damage. But mine had been happily growing for five years. Wow. Despite being checked regularly, it wasn't taken seriously because of my age and my lack of family history. Wow. Um, and so I immediately remember them being like, do you need some time to think about this? And me say, no, <laughs> I don't need time. What's next? And me sort of having a moment of intense clarity. And I say this a lot about this time in my life. For me, it was almost a new feeling having something that I could focus on that was important and that was important to me and was important to people around me. Um, it wasn't crying over an audition. It wasn't, you know, somebody got a part that you didn't get. You know, these things that had become very important in my life. And now all of a sudden, they get to fall away. And I get to have one goal and a very uh, systematic goal that doesn't require me to like read people's minds and be what somebody wants me to be having just come off of this experience too with being fired and sort of this disillusionment with my place in the business I almost had this like immediate feeling of peace and comfort that I had a goal I had a job to do and all of a sudden, I had people surrounding me. There isn't really much that you get to experience in your life as an actor that everybody can get behind. Hmm. And it's a weird thing to say, but you know, everything's a bit controversial or everyone has an opinion about your performance or everyone has an opinion about how you're living your life or what your face looks like, you know? Mm -hmm. And this was like, no one could have those opinions anymore. People who were forming those opinions for me my whole life in this business were now behind me in an army of people sort of pushing me toward whatever I felt was best for me. And I had not experienced that before, or at least I hadn't allowed myself to experience or see those in the experiences that I was having. So I immediately felt um, almost relieved in a weird way. It's hard to explain, but I think other people who have been through it would sort of know what I'm talking about. And people would say this to me. They'd say, you're not going to be thankful that it happened, but you're going to end up being better because it happened. Hmm. And I understand what they mean. Conversely, I think for my family, it was a major blow. It was a major blow for my mom, who's very positive and very much believes that the world is looking out for her and that God is looking out for her mm. and that the way she views the world comes back to her, you know, pays dividends back to her. And her staunch belief that this wasn't going to be the outcome of what this was, I remember it just shattering her where for me, I felt like it sort of boosted me to be like, okay, it's time to take on this job. And not just, she did not crumble she was my biggest source of strength during the whole thing and, and was tireless. Woke up every morning researching new treatments, ways to the best doctors. I mean, she was the only reason I you know, was able to do what I was able to do. But I watched a woman who's 
met many challenges in her life get hit hard by this in a way that didn't make sense to her. And it affected a lot of our, affected a lot of our beliefs. And like what I have sort of said in, up to this point is this belief that you follow the rules and you get rewarded for it was something that I had been trained through my religion, through my experience with my family and my brother, through sort of my early successes in life. These are all coming to you because you're following the rules and you are obeying. And now what happens when one of the huge pillars you've based your whole life on gets cut out from under you, the table topples without a leg, Hmm. you know, and it toppled for all of us in many ways, my father included, but my father was sort of still at work and still able to kind of, you know, I moved out back to California and really just, I lived with my parents through the whole thing and did all my treatments and stuff in California through the whole thing. You know, my dad's sort of recognition of it came much later, even as we had sort of pulled ourselves through this process, it really hit him later what I went through. And we all just sort of had this, you know, leg of our table cut out from under us and we dealt with it in different ways. And, but what it ultimately led to was a real cracking open of a relationship. And this is something that, you know, I had brought up before. I was hiding bits of myself to the people that I, that were closest to me to fit this sort of like, I might believe this, but I don't want to speak too loud. And I might feel this, but I don't want to be too in your face. And women aren't leaders and all these sort of latent things that were living inside of me and microwaves. I was hiding parts of myself that I didn't even realize it came to a head so explosively during this time because I didn't want to hide anything anymore. Nothing felt worth keeping in my body anymore. Wow. Um, it felt like it had to come out. And that led to wow, really hard. Wow, that is hard. such a poetic. Yeah. Have you been dropping that line on everybody <laughs> since this? Because that is an <laughs> awesome line. Holy well, moly. I'm sorry. I had to stop the train line. there because I just couldn't. Maybe the audience is like, yeah, Nick, we get it. It was a really good line. But I'm just like, <laughs> that was beautiful. Yeah, I had to get, nothing could stay. Nothing got to live inside wow. for for too long. It had to like get processed and get taken out because I was literally killing parts of inside of my body. I'm, I was losing body parts to this disease. And it was wow. like, I can't let anything stick anymore. It's just got to flow. And, and honestly, part of that was a big, like now I was diagnosed in September, but I didn't tell a lot of people because I was worried about work. And there was a part where I wasn't going to have to do chemo. So I was like, I'm going to keep working. And here's the stickler, which I'll bring this back just very ever so quickly. Um, I don't know if this happened to you, but even though I, I still got paid for the pilot of How I Met Your Dad, but it was when SAG and ASTRA were coming together mm-hmm. and they had not merged their health plans. So mm, even, yes. so the How I Met Your Dad pilot was on ASTRA Right. It changed the inferior, the inferior. Exactly. And uh, I wasn't able to keep my SAG insurance if I didn't work. And here we are in September. I called to be like, how far am I from my thing? Like, I know I made some money on that pilot. And they were like, oh, you have $800. And I was like, $800 less to qualify? They're like, no, you've only made $800 this year towards SAG. 
because I, I had I do remember work. that, but I, of course, was not dealing with cancer at the time, so yeah. I didn't really care what my insurance was, you know? Yeah. Wow. So now all of a sudden, I'm having to be like, okay, well, I'm not going to lose my hair. I'm not going through chemo, so I'm going to work. I did a movie. I did, like, all of the stuff. I had to, like, really, I was calling in favors from casting directors to get me on, like, guest stars so that I could pay my health insurance wow. um, because I knew I needed it. Um, I had to work in theater. You know, I was going to lose all health insurance at this point, which was not the time for that to happen. So, so while I was working and doing all that stuff, I wasn't telling people about it. And I remember being at a party in January and somebody coming up to me and putting their hand on my leg and saying, how's your pilot season going? Wow. And I was like, oh my God, (laughs) I have not thought about pilot season. The way you just asked me that was like life or death. And believe me, buddy, I know life and death now. And that is not it. Mm. And it was what really hit me that I wasn't, I was lying. It, it didn't feel like I was preserving myself for some greater good. I was lying about my diagnosis. And that's what led me to come out with the blog and come out very publicly about my experience and really like exposed some very deep parts of me that I had never considered doing. Like I never even posted photos of my dog on Instagram. I didn't want people knowing parts of my personal life. It was not something that I wanted to share. Mm -hmm. And this whole new idea of better out than in was like, I'm not going to allow people to treat me like my biggest problem is pilot season. I am going to be out and proud about what's happening and we're going to, you know, and, and so that, led to really a lot of like cracking open of like, what do I want to show? What are the parts of me that I'm hiding that I can't hide anymore? And so many little things that I was tucking into like many nooks and crannies of my life were, were just not worth holding on to anymore. And that led to a lot of these conversations with my family about some doubts I was having about my beliefs and things that I was showing them to show I was still feeling this way, even though hiding all of these things that I didn't really believe. And instead of meeting me with fear, like they had in the past, they met me with acceptance and vulnerability and understanding. And it wasn't an easy road and it's still not an easy road, but a lot of these relationships that I felt were very close had to get broken at the very seams and fibers in order to get rebuilt in a real way. And um, my parents really took that, you know, with this religion idea and they took a break, like a big pause where they felt like something, when you're going through something like this, you don't feel like anyone can understand because they can't. Even another person going through cancer has a different experience than you're going through. Hmm. So it really felt like to them, they didn't want to hear someone say, God has a plan. They didn't want to hear is the same experience of me of pilot season, you know, oh, you're going to get back in there. Don't worry. Oh, I'm not worried. Like, (laughs) you know, and like with them, like they couldn't have someone say like, oh, you know, maybe you needed to pray harder or maybe, you know, you're not following close enough to, so it really challenged all of us to like, become a tighter unit together and believe in each other instead of this outside force that could maybe save me or could maybe not. It was like, well, I know what can and it's research and science and doctors and positivity and family and belief and honesty and relationships. And that's, what's going to get me through this. And 
I remember saying I felt like I was gonna run my own race and God can run alongside me, but we're not running together right now. And if he wants to meet me at the finish line, we'll talk, but, Mm. but I got to run right now. And like, that's what I did. And I, I ran and, um, and we, we, we quote unquote won. you know, I'm cancer free. I'm, you know, I think what was amazing was that I was, I, for the first time in my career, took my foot off the gas and just said, I'm not going to work. I'm going to write and I'm going to see how that happens. And from that, because I wasn't going with what I thought was going to be the best career move, some of the most beautiful and influential works that I had ever been able to do showed up. I was doing a Broadway show of a role that I had loved my whole life that I understudied when I was 20. I'm in the revival of Spring Awakening playing this part. And like a part in the show where I'm wearing a wig and I expose my bald head on stage. Mm. And I did a piece on television where I played a cancer patient with my full bald head on television. Like this was something I would have never felt brave enough to do, you know, but people were meeting me and saying, this is what we believe you're capable of instead of show us what you can do. Sort of being like, we want to rise to meet you with things that we want to share and take what you're going through and build this even stronger. And so I felt this real sense of like power and ownership over myself and my choices. And I think the biggest thing that came out of this belief wise, I started meditating. I started, I had a therapist, a great therapist, which took me way too long to get one of those. It was not until cancer that Mm -hmm. I decided to go to therapy Mm -hmm. because it was a threat. You know, you're not supposed to have, you're not supposed to seek counsel from the ungodly. So unless it was a Christian therapist, you were not supposed to go to therapy. That's what I was taught as a child. Wow. And so now here we are, my whole family's in therapy. Like all of these dogma ideas that we had thought were keeping us safe, whether or not they help other people, we realized that wasn't what was keeping us safe. Those rules, those like ideas wasn't what was protecting us. And you realize that when you find yourself vulnerable. And so we decided to do the real work of these things that we had been holding on to that we were trusting and that didn't make sense. And I remember a therapist saying like, don't read a book about God. Like ask God if he's there and let him reveal he or she or what it reveal itself to you in any way that it it presents itself what is God to you if you ask to see God how does it show up does it show up in nature does it does it show up in circumstances does it show up in you know all kinds of different ways and what I was really struck by in meditation and manifestation is this idea of prayer and how close it is to manifestation and how where I drew my power was seeing what if it was me all along? What if it was simply the act of asking, solidifying what I believe and moving in that direction and allowing myself to see where it was cropping up because I had set that intention that was doing it the whole time. And And I think this experience of going through this illness where you have an army of people fighting with you, you do feel like it might be me (laughs) Mm. in a weird way. Um, 
it might, this might all come down to me and I don't need to answer to anybody anymore. Well, I don't know. That's up to God. I can search myself, the real person, the person who I am now, who I created through this trauma. She might know. And that's, I think, become more powerful to me than any, you know, religion I ever subscribed to. Wow. That's a great story. <laughs> you really, I mean, this was really cool to listen to. Well, uh, it's, it's developing. It's, de- <laughs> it's ongoing. Sure, of course. So, of course yeah. it's ongoing, but wow, what a transformation. What, oh man, I mean, I'm really, um, I think I'm just impressed at your storytelling. Like clearly you, have done so much work and reflection on this part of your life. It's centered mm-hmm. you in these really tangible and recognizable ways to an outsider listening to this. Wow, you you really put all of this in context. You've thought a lot about this. You understand where you're at. Is there anything more interesting for you to talk about regarding your parents and your spiritual relationship with them? Yeah, I mean, one thing that I notice in all of that is there is, there is a yearning for inspiration. You know, there was something really great about going to church and getting riled up for the next week and having a plan moving forward. And there is a bit of that, that I, that I miss, but it doesn't, it doesn't replace this sort of feeling that I have of accomplishing these things through my, my own body. You know, I think like I've become obsessed in my work and in teaching and all of that with like connecting to my body and it's something that I feel truly was told to not explore Mm. as a child and not by my parents even my parents were very supportive of me being a strong woman and leader it was just this reinforcement of this belief in the church that our body is made for somebody else and I think what this new resurgence is is that my body healed, you know, Mm. and my gut knows. And like, I cleared out all the gunk and maybe I can, let's see what happens if I'm sort of at the helm of this life. And it's an ongoing experiment. Like I said, I might, you know, yes, my parents have, they have felt this lack of that inspiration and camaraderie, especially because I think their marriage was based on it. You know, that's a big thing to take out of a marriage as well. Mm. So of course, now no one can go to church, but um, <laughs> but sort of go back and sort of explore with this new lens. I'm less interested in exploring organized religion with the new lens. I'm interested in exploring life with the new lens. But a lot of things could adjust and I might explore more into different beliefs. But I think that where I'm at right now feels really calm, content with what I believe. Well, Krista, that was just an extraordinarily beautiful story to listen to. I thoroughly appreciate you sharing so much. I am impressed, very impressed by the depth of reflection and meditation and growth that you are exhibiting. It's so clear that you have gone through something extraordinary and above um, what is the average life. And 
that you are, you've entered into a new way of relating to the world around you. And I think it's really cool. And I really appreciate you sharing it. And um, I just want to say thanks. Thank you. To all the listeners, thank you all for listening. You know, it's not something I'm plugging for like future, but it, it's but people kind of could a time go back capsule. and look at this exactly for okay. people to look at the time. Yeah. Um, okay, so great. let me let me act like I knew what I was talking about, and let me recall <laughs> that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Good. Good. Good.